I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. One of our elders remarked to me this morning, are we going to be 40 years in the book of Exodus? We are approaching four years in the book of Exodus and still, of course, have a ways to go, but my plan is to finish before we get to 40. Um, Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, we do pray that every time we come to your word, we would be growing in humble submission to its loving, divine, and wonderful authority, that we would see ways in which our minds pushes back against the instruction of your word, in which our hearts resist uh, the call to faith and repentance, wishing to go our own way. We pray in particular tonight that we would consider the high calling that is before us as your children to live within the body of Christ in the spirit of unity and brotherly love, and that that would be more and more pervasive among us within our homes, within our extended families, uh, within our church community. All for the name of Christ and his honor and glory we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, and your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman, and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. The word of our God, you may be seated. Now, as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus, and in particular, these few chapters here that are called the book of the covenants, You might remember that this is a portion of the book of Exodus that begins in chapter 20 right after the giving of the law and concludes here in chapter 23, a section that we'll get to next time together. Now, this book of the covenants is really nothing more than helping the children of Israel learn how to take the law of God, how to take the Decalogue and flesh it out, if you will, into life together within the covenant community. Let's remember our wonderful, wonderful summary statement from Old Testament scholar Michael Barrett, 
who wrote that the primary lesson to learn from the book of the covenant is that the application of God's law extends to every part of life. There is no part of life that is too small or insignificant to be exempt from God-pleasing behavior. So let's see how Exodus chapter 23, written hundreds upon hundreds of years ago, has continued relevance as it guides and directs us on life together. Now, much of what we read here has to do with pursuing and maintaining peace in life together. And so, for our first point this evening, let's think think for a few moments about the importance of church unity, the importance of unity. Now, a vital characteristic of the local church is to be unified, to live together in a spirit of peace and harmony, of learning to humble ourselves in brotherly love. And when we talk about unity, we're not talking, of course, about unity at any cost. But it is unity that is to be forged around the instruction of God's Word. Unity that we are growing together in as we learn to submit mind and heart to the authority of God's Word. And when we look at the broader culture, of course, we see divisions all over the place. Political, social, ethical, ideological divides, and so much more. And it seems as though people are becoming more and more comfortable, especially over the last couple of years, of expressing their displeasure and outright disdain and hatred toward others who don't agree with them, who don't think like them, who don't live like them. But this spirit of division, any form of disunity, any type of unresolved conflict should not in any way be part of our church family. And so what we learn here and what we learn in other portions of Scripture that we'll touch on a little bit together this evening is that if we are in Christ Jesus, if we are part of the covenant community, then our love for God's truth and our love for our Savior should be so great that, in fact, we delight to humble ourselves in a spirit of harmony and service, keeping short accounts and resolving conflicts and disputes quickly and readily. Now, here's how we could resolve conflicts according to God's Word if we think simply of three key words to be mindful of, quickly, thoroughly, and frequently. Think of resolving conflicts quickly. Don't allow such things to linger within mind and heart, simply creating bitterness and a party spirit. Resolve conflicts thoroughly. In other words, don't hold on to some remnant of past hurt, rehearsing it in mind and heart as you think about what you wish you would have said in that particular moment, but instead, forgive and move on, and forgive frequently, resolve conflicts frequently. No surprise, we're all sinners living together within the local church. Undoubtedly, you have offended other people or you have been offended by others. We should expect that, living together. And that gives us many opportunities to forgive regularly. And we do all of this for the sake of the gospel, all of this for the sake of Christ and His honor and glory. Because no matter how small a conflict or division might be among us, if we tolerate it in our lives, if we allow it to remain among us, then it has the potential of not only destroying those immediate relationships, but of course it is contrary to how the Lord calls us to live and brings dishonor upon the name of Christ. 
And so let's notice next in verses 1 and 2 that we are to speak the truth in love. And this is our second point this evening, simply speak the truth in love. Of course, we read that direct instruction in Ephesians chapter 4 in the New Testament, where we also read that we are to put away falsehood and speak truth with our neighbor, for we are members one of another. Later in Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is helpful for building others up as fits the occasion. Now, of course, there are all sorts of ways in which conflicts can arise in our relationships with others, everything from simple misunderstandings to failures on our part to listen accurately, to presume the motives of another, to think the worse of another by being suspicious or full of jealousy or envy, holding on to grudges or past hurts and offenses, outright lying, gossip, belittling, backbiting, and so much more. Jesus says some wonderfully masterful things about the power and the importance of our words. Remember when He says that it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so, there are always thoughts behind our words. We can never convince ourselves that what we said we didn't really mean if it truly flows from the mind and the heart. And so, there are always motives of the heart that lie underneath the things that we say. And if we were to press down deeper within those recesses of our hearts, we would find that behind everything that we say is an ultimate allegiance. And we are either emulating the evil one who is full of wickedness, lies, deception, and disunity, or we are seeking to emulate the Lord God, striving to honor Him with our speech. You see, God is a God of truth, and so He desires truthfulness in the lives of His people. He's a God of righteousness and a God of justice, and the way that we use our words should reflect the fact that we belong to the living God. And the most obvious way in which we violate the law here in the misuse of our words is in malicious or a destructive manner. Now, this could be, as the text points out, deliberately lying under oath. Of course, it's a travesty of justice when the testimony of someone leads to the exoneration of one who is guilty or the condemnation of one who is innocent. But there's application beyond merely a courtroom-type setting. Don't think to yourself that this is just advice for those who are involved in some sort of legal profession. You could spread false reports by saying something that's just not true out of some level of self-motivation in your own hearts. Maybe you take something out of context, misrepresenting another person. Maybe we don't listen fully to what another says. We have sort of a selective hearing problem, only paying attention to the things that we want to hear. You could cause suspicion or division in a relationship with another by repeating something that was told to you in confidence. Verse 2 says that you may be tempted to side with the many. We could think of here of the temptation to go along with the crowd because we don't want to stand out or being too duly influenced by the loud voices of those around us because of our fear of standing for the truth. Perhaps it's various forms of flattery in which we're not completely truthful because of a desire for social inclusion or wanting others to think highly of us. Anytime we fail to tell the whole truth, we're spreading false reports. Just think of how difficult it can be to try to mediate a division between two parties. 
when you know that neither side is being completely truthful. We read in Proverbs chapter 18, one seems right until another comes and examines him. You might think of children who bicker. You hear them fighting in the back room and you sit them down to ask them what happened. You listen to one who sounds perfectly just and righteous because, of course, he's only telling you his side of the, of the incident. You listen to the other who sounds just as righteous as the other. Neither side is telling you the full story because, of course, it would implicate them in the conflict. So we all have self-protective motives which will tarnish our interpretation of what actually happens. There are so many ways in which we violate this simple instruction to speak the truth in love or to refrain from bearing false witness. And even though God's Word is abundantly clear, giving us all sorts of wonderfully practical guidance and instruction on how to resolve conflicts when they arise among us, and that we are to be slow to speak and quick to forgive, we can sometimes convince ourselves that our situation is unique, that our relationships with another in which conflict has gone on is much more complex than what the Scriptures teach us. Now, it's certainly not easy, of course, to acknowledge that we have borne false witness against another, but the gospel of our Savior calls for us to humble ourselves, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for cleansing, and then go to our neighbor and to be reconciled in a spirit of brotherly love and unity. By doing so, we're bearing witness to the power of the gospel, and we honor the Lord God who has saved us from condemnation. Well, there's more instruction related to our words there in verse 3 and then verses 6 through 9 that sort of tie together here as we think about the direction here to not show partiality. So this is our third point this evening, show no partiality. We read in James chapter 2, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 of James 2 cannot be clearer. If you show partiality you are committing sin. Now, partiality is simply showing favoritism to one person over another. And there can be all sorts of hidden motives within the hearts that can lead us to show partiality. Maybe we want something from another person in return. Sort of a I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Maybe we just want the acceptance or the approval of someone. Maybe we fear the consequences of siding against a powerful person even though we know that they're in the wrong. It could be fear that a person has power over us financially, vocationally, or in some sort of social group. But it's not just siding with the majority, as we read there in verse 2, but verse 3 tells us that we should show no partiality to the poor. And I think this is a really important thing for us to consider in our own time. The whole notion of liberation theology which took root in the 1960s, and the social justice movement that is continuing to make inroads in the church leads us to believe that preferential treatment should be given to the poor, as though we should be more favorable toward the poor than the rich. But this is just as unbiblical as showing preferential treatment to the rich over the poor. Now, of course, our God is against injustice, But just because someone is poor does not mean that they are the product of injustice. It's pretty simplistic 
to presume that all forms of poverty just flow from injustice, either in the immediate or going back multiple generations, that actually doesn't show love to our neighbor. It doesn't treat him as an individual. It's actually belittling to the poor to just tell them that we know what their problem is, that they're the product of injustice, and we'll fix your problem through an imposed system of equity or reparations. But regardless of one's income level, if they commit a crime, justice requires some form of punishment. It's not loving to the poor in our community to permit them, for example, to go to a convenience store and just walk out with items that they want as though they're entitled to those things. It's almost as though poverty is treated like a virtue in our present age. Now, certainly there are times, of course, when the rich use their positions of power and influence to work injustice against the poor. But the poor are not always right, nor are the rich always wrong. The point of the text is that there should not be bias toward either. God clearly condemns partiality because as we read in Romans chapter 2, God shows no partiality. And so as we think of the temptation toward favoritism, again, we might consider the motives of the heart that would lead me to treat someone more favorably than another. And as I think about those underlying motives, I'm reminded of the deceptive nature of my own heart, that I should have an appropriate level of suspicion of my heart because there is wickedness that lies within and deceit that I don't fully understand. And so I need the tender work of the Holy Spirit to help me to grow in wisdom and in discernment so that I'm honoring the Lord God in all of my relationships with others. Because whether poor or rich or wherever we might fall on that continuum, we all have one thing in common. That is, of course, that we are sinners in need of grace. Seeking justice, pursuing righteousness, being impartial in our desire to love our neighbor. We ought to long to do these things because, as verse 9 tells us, you know the heart of the sojourner because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, you care for others and you refrain from any form of oppression or bias or prejudice because of who you once were. This is the gospel motive that we find throughout the New Testament. Colossians 3.13, for example, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Matthew chapter 18, forgive your brother from the heart. Philippians chapter 2, consider the wonderful humility of Christ as you are to humble yourself and look to the interests of others. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The next thing that we find here in Exodus 23, as we think about learning to live life together, is seen there in verses 4 and 5. Love your enemies. And so our fourth point this evening is this. Love your enemy. Of course, Jesus makes this explicit statement in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. And this is one of the greatest ways, I think, that we can bear witness to our Savior because this is so completely contrary to our natural heart's desire. It's almost expected that if someone is cruel to you, you have the right to be cruel right back to them. That if they speak words 
of harm or hurt or actions that damage you in some way that it's easy to justify a hateful response in return. Again, you might think of dealing with young children when you ask them, why did you do what you did? What is their response? Well, they did it first. It's our sin nature that is ingrained within us, this sort of law of retaliation, as though we're completely justified in responding in like manner. But as God's children, we are held to a higher standard, a different ethic that is not based upon human reasoning, but is based upon the instruction of God's Word. And so the examples that are given here in the text of an ox of your neighbor who has strayed or a burden that he might be struggling with has all sorts of contemporary applications. It could be something as simple as your neighbor's pet getting loose from their backyard. You see out your kitchen window as he's wandering down the street. It could be tempting to think to yourself, I never really liked that dog anyway. (laughs) Or my neighbor's been always sort of crotchety, yelling at my kids for stepping on his front yard. Maybe this will humble him a little bit. Or you see a neighbor struggling to load something in his car and could use a hand. If you see someone that you don't care for struggling, it might be tempting to feel vindicated. Oh, they're getting what they deserve. And instead, the Lord calls you to help. Proverbs 24, 17 reads, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So if God, in His providence, provides an opportunity for you to show kindness even to an enemy, it's an opportunity to help and serve, and again, to bear witness to the higher allegiance that you belong to the living God. Now, how can we possibly do this, we might wonder? How can we possibly love someone who has mistreated us, who has been cruel to us, who has caused so much hurt and pain? Perhaps it's an offense that has been with me for so long that I can't imagine what it's going to take to actually humble myself and forgive How can I learn to live this way? We live by faith and not by sight. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us to learn to live in submission to His Word and trust in His ways. We meditate and reflect upon upon how wonderfully kind and gracious and merciful the Lord has been to us. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that since Christ died for us, we are no longer to live for ourselves but for him who died for us and was raised again. Romans 5 guides us as well. We were enemies of God in our wickedness. We had hatred toward him, but he saved us. And now that we are reconciled to God, we are to pursue reconciliation with others. Of course, there's instances in which the other person wants to have nothing to do with any effort toward restoration. The Scriptures guide us there as well. As far as you are able, seek to live at peace with all. But you see, it's all about the gospel. It's about the power of the gospel. It's about the wonder of the gospel. It's about the transformation that the gospel brings into our lives. Our heavenly home awaits us. The riches and glories of Christ for all of eternity will be here before we know it. And all of the disagreements that seem to be so significant to us will be exposed as petty and insignificant in light of eternity. 
And the reality is this is how we are to live now because eternal life is a present possession for the believer in Christ. We are already members of another kingdom. And one last thing to cover tonight, our fifth point this evening, is in verses 10 through 13, in which we read that we are to show mercy on the Sabbath, or simply Sabbath mercy. Look there again at verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. For the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now, of course, the instruction here is related to the fourth commandment. And throughout the Pentateuch, we read more and more detail about how we are to honor the Lord by keeping the Sabbath day holy. There was teaching on the Sabbath all the way back in Exodus chapter 12. The children of Israel, you might remember, were still in slavery in the land of Egypt in preparation for the 10th plague that was about to come in the Passover celebration they were given instruction on the Sabbath day. And then later in Exodus chapter 16, as they're wandering towards Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and the Lord first provides manna for them in the desert, He gives them instruction on the Sabbath day. And of course, when we get to Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the law, there's instruction there in the fourth commandment. We read more here in chapter 23, and it will come up again in chapters 31 and 35. As you work through the Pentateuch in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there is more instruction on the Sabbath day. Obviously, there's a great deal that could be said here about the importance of keeping that Sabbath day as a day of worship and rest from our labors. And one of the larger lessons I think that we can learn from the Sabbath instruction is that all of our time belongs to the Lord just as all of our substance, all of our minds and hearts belong to Him. In our potential officer training class recently, we were talking about how the Lord's Day helps to frame every other day of the week. Not only as you reflect upon what was taught to you on Sunday as you begin your week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but you think back as well to some of the needs of the church that you were reminded of in prayer together or in your conversations with one another. As you think about the next Lord's Day that's coming, you work diligently and prepare ahead so that it can be a day of rest and refreshment for your family. But notice here how the instruction has to do with mercy shown toward others. There's this outward focus really throughout this entire chapter 23, speaking the truth, showing no partiality, loving your neighbor, even your enemy, and showing Sabbath mercy. It's not only you who are called to rest on that seventh day, but all of those within your household, from livestock to servants to children, of course, anything living within your household might be refreshed. And then we read that every seventh year when they enter into the land of promise is to be a year of rest in which the ground remains fallow. Basically, it is not to be cultivated, 
nor is seed to be sown. Now, we might wonder, why does the Lord tell the children of Israel to do this? Is He just preparing them for environmental purposes? Were the Israelites the first green nation to walk the face of the earth? Now, certainly there are very practical reasons to let the ground remain fallow every seventh year so that it might replenish in minerals and so forth, but that's not actually the reason that's given here. Instead, we're told that the motive is to be one of mercy. While the ground is not to be worked on that seventh year, of course, it will still produce harvest and should be for the poor and for animals. Now, any time that there is some change from the normal routine, rest from that usual routine of labor, it's an opportunity for us to learn to trust in the Lord for His provision. Sometimes we get anxious in our own lives about the upcoming week, and so we can see Sunday as a day to both catch up and plan ahead for the busyness of the week. But instead, as we learn to refrain from those things, it helps us to learn to trust and rest in the Lord. You can imagine it would be a huge test of faith for the entire nation of Israel to refrain from sowing and harvesting on that seventh year. They must trust God in advance to give them a bountiful year in that sixth year to carry them through. And of course, they must trust in the Lord to provide for them when that seven-year cycle begins again. One pastor I listened to recently put it like this, that the Sabbath is paired with the principle of provision. God will give what is needed, even if they don't know what they need. He provides for the poor, for the animals, for the farmers, and He replenishes the land. And so this pattern of work and rest is built into every part of life. It is before the people of Israel constantly as they are learning to trust in the Lord to rest in His goodness and kindness to provide what they need. And so, whether it's the weekly Sabbath, whether it's the Sabbath year, or when you read through Leviticus 25, there's further instruction about the year of Jubilee. This instruction of trusting in the Lord is constantly before the people of God. I think it's interesting that some biblical scholars point out There's no historical record of the children of Israel ever keeping a Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee for that matter. At the end of 2 Chronicles, it seems as though part of the reason for those years of exile in Babylon is because of their failure to keep those Sabbath years. But any Sabbath rest in this earthly life is temporary, and it is provisional rest, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4. It is meant to point us ahead to that great day of rest that awaits us in the finished work of Christ our Lord. And as we marvel and as we wonder at the mercy of God shown toward us, we are to show mercy toward others. And finally, as we look at verse 13, it seems to be a conclusion, at least to this particular section, sort of this catch-all reminder that everything is to be brought under His Lordship. Make no mention of any other gods. Don't even take their name upon your lips, because the Lord is the giver of all things. He is the sustainer of life, 
He is the creator of all, and He is the one who has redeemed you, and so we owe Him everything. We are not at liberty to decide which laws we want to keep and which laws we want to reject. As our Lord, He alone has the right and the authority to demand total obedience as He calls us to do all things for His glory. And so, there really are three things that Israel is to do here in this concluding statement. Guard the laws that God has given to them. Forget false gods and do not even mention their names. Now, every time that you reflect upon a portion of God's Word like this, which is obviously heavy on the imperative, on commands that are given to us, it is so important that we keep in mind the context in which we are told to do these things. It's not do such things that you may live, but because of the life that you have already in Christ Jesus, this is how you are called to live. And so, when you come to commands like this, it's worth asking, where do you see grace transform you? Where are you different in your life because of the sovereign grace of God that has saved you from condemnation? Where are you seeing the Lord's tender mercy to continue to be patient and faithful in His sanctifying grace in your life? May He who began a good work in you bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And as we reflect upon such things, may the Lord be pleased to help us, to help us walk in obedience in these oftentimes difficult and complicated scenarios of life as we learn to live life together in love and in unity, not for our own sake, but for the sake of our blessed Savior who has redeemed us.